Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Genesis chapter 50, as we uh, finish up our series from the life of Joseph. A lot of people have been asking me what, what's coming next. Uh, we are going to be doing two out of Philemon. Jay's going to be leading us through that. And then we're going to jump into Colossians and work our way through Colossians. Those are related books, by the way. And then we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John after that. So we've got it laid out for a while, just working our way through those scriptures. You may have, uh, you may have noticed that uh, our text this morning is bookended by two funerals. Uh, first, you have Jacob's funeral, which is uh, quite a to-do, if you read it, right? It's, it's almost royal. It's amazing. And then at the end of the chapter, we have Joseph's funeral, which is actually a very subdued event. But in between, we have uh, the heart of the text, where the, the main teaching is and where we're going to focus this morning. And, and it's interesting because the structure of the text, having these two funerals and kind of the heart of the life of the text in the middle, really, I think, captures the theme of the text, which is life in between. How do we live life in between? You see, uh, this, this story, if you've been here with us, the story of Joseph's life has already reached its, its climax, hasn't it? If you know the story, it kind of starts where, where God tells Joseph that he's going to, to rule, that all the brothers and sisters are going to bow down to him. He has that vision, and then his brothers hate him for it, and then they sell him into slavery, but he, he rises to power in Egypt uh, all through God's doing. And then his brothers come down during the famine, and eventually he reveals himself and he saves them and brings the whole family down and saves them from the famine in Egypt. That's all already happened. It's climaxed. And now all we have left over these past couple chapters is Joseph's family, the, the promise, the sons of promise, kind of living out their lives in Goshen, in Egypt, until they die. Their God saved people. He's worked in their lives. He's made them his. They're looking forward to the promised, the promised land, the fulfillment of the promises of God, and they're just living their lives comfortably in the land. And the question is, how should they live? And it's really the perennial question of, of the Christian life, isn't it? Life in between. We've been saved. Heaven, the full inheritance, is ahead of us. How do we live in between? That is what Joseph's brothers, in particular here, are starting to struggle with. And I want us just to jump in and kind of learn with them, which is always interesting because they learn a lot the hard way. So let's start, as I said, in the middle of the text in uh, verse 15. And let's read. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they just came back, you see, from, from his funeral, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now what is, uh, 
What is odd about this? About their behavior here? Well, if you know the story, clearly Joseph has already forgiven them, right? I mean, yeah, they grievously sinned against him, which they, they own here. They talk about their transgressions and their sin and their evil. And yes, Joseph did, for a while, put them through a series of trials. You know, the whole putting the, the, their own money back in their sacks and throwing them in jail and keeping Simeon as collateral. But through it all, they came to own their guilt. Back in chapter 42, they say it. God has found out a guilt of your servants. Behold, we are the Lord's servants. That's actually chapter 44. and 42, they say it as well. Verse 21, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Through it all, they came to own their guilt, and Joseph eventually, in tears, reveals himself he forgives them, they're reunited, they're celebration, and they are all saved. He brings them down to Egypt. So what is this about? What's going on here where they are suddenly afraid of Joseph? And no, they are afraid. They send a messenger, they don't even go themselves, to ask Joseph. Well, they seem to be sliding back into living under their guilt instead of grace, don't they? Slipping into that mindset that says they've just been too horrible and, 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 they, and, they, and they don't deserve it. This can't be real. Joseph is going to get them back sliding under that guilt and condemnation. And now they have to try to fix it. They're trying to do something to get some guarantee that Joseph won't kind of, you know, enact some godfather-like vengeance and have them all assassinated in the night. But Joseph, when he hears the request, he, he just weeps. You see, the first lesson of life in between is that they must continue to live under the grace that they've received. To live in that grace every day. Joseph's gracious forgiveness wasn't some one-off event where now they have to watch their backs lest he change his mind and get them. But somehow, they've fallen into this mindset. They're defaulting here to this guilt. And when I first read it, I'm just like, what is wrong with these guys? You know, don't they remember the weeping and the joy and the reconciliation? Don't they get how much he loves them? But actually, if you pause and think about it in an honest moment, it's very real and very relevant, isn't it? People were doing this in the early church after they'd been saved through the grace of Christ. Teachers coming in, the Judaizers, and saying, oh, you can't, you can't depend on that. Pushing people back to ritual and law to try to 
fix things before God to please him, and thus all this guilt and condemnation is piled on. We fall into it as Christians today. I know I do. For some reason, I have this tendency to to kind of crawl back underneath the guilt and shame of my sin. It's kind of my default mode if I'm not really walking in the Spirit. I I slip back into that place that says, you're too bad, Carrie. You're too... You've been way too bad, and you're, you still sin, and you know you're a pastor. You're not really completely forgiven. God's, he's, he's going to get you. I never say that out loud because I know that's theologically wrong, but I function that way in my life. Do you ever do that? Slide back into guilt and shame mode? I was talking to somebody this week, and they were describing um, depression, and, and they used this example of a warm, familiar blanket, and it made me think of, of this guilt and shame. Just that, it's that warm, familiar place. We sat under it a long time. Very easy to slide back there. And then, of course, you get tangled in it, and you have that panic moment when you can't get out of the blanket. See, three things I think tend to happen when we're in this state of mind as we kind of let go of of grace and slide away. First of all, I think what we're doing is we're trying to actually grab onto control. Resting in our Savior's grace is just too reliant, too dependent, too trusting. No, I I want control. I want to trust in my own efforts. That's what Joseph's brothers are doing here, aren't they? You look, at, look at verse 16 and 17 again. This is my favorite. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. No, he didn't. They're, they're lying. They're trying to manipulate and coerce Joseph's forgiveness that he's already given. But they're trying to turn that forgiveness from something that he's given out of total grace into something that they've made happen through their manipulation and efforts by their will. You know, so, so he has to forgive them. Your father said it, you've got to do it. It's interesting, this is the way of the, uh, the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. This is how they operated in relationship to God. You remember the Elijah story? What do they do? They, they want their God to do something, so they... They go into full manipulation mode, right? We will dance around the fire. We'll dance, we'll dance, we'll dance. We'll say our incantations. Still not happening. We'll cut ourselves. We have to. We'll manipulate her as much as we can. We have to get him. He'll have to act if we do enough of this. Unless, as Elijah points out, he's busy relieving himself and he's not paying attention. This is the way all man-made religions work institutionalized systems of placating our guilt by manipulating God into forgiving us. Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, Catholicism. I come with all my guilt and my shame and then I say my prayers and I do my works and I do my rituals and if I do them right and if I do enough of them, they'll kind of owe me forgiveness. I've got control. I work the system. Of course, it's never quite enough. 
I have to keep on doing stuff because I keep on sinning. So that, that warm blanket of control that feels so good ends up being this suffocating, entangling trap that I can't get out of. So you live in fear. Look at what Joseph says to his brothers in response after he weeps. Verse 19, do not fear. Verse 21, so do not fear. See, when we let go of continuing in grace or resting in that grace, we're attempting to take control and it just brings this life of fear and fretting and guilt and shame. And there's a second thing that happens as we're responding that way, we actually grieve our Savior. How did Joseph respond when, when, when they came to him in this way? He wept. Last time we see him weep like this is, is, is when his, he's, he was still separated from his brothers because of their betrayal against him and their sin. And he, and he couldn't reveal himself because they hadn't yet worked their way God hadn't worked in him out that, that guilt and that repentance. And he was yearning to be reconciled. And he had to go off and weep because of that distant, separated relationship. And it's kind of like they're there again. They've forgotten his grace. They're distant, separated unreconciled it feels they are literally living in fear of joseph you can't get more distant relationally than to live in fear you have trust in a relationship where you can live in fear it's like polar polar opposites and of course to to respond this way to joseph only belittles the sacrifice and the hardship he endured, all the pain he absorbed so as to forgive them and save them. It means they aren't really believing it, they aren't really receiving it, and he weeps. My friends, when we slip away from living under the gracious salvation we have received, from resting in that reality, we're, we're trying to grab control and we're pushing away the, the closeness the intimacy that our Savior died to have with us, that he bought with his life. This is why Hebrews 10, we were talking about yesterday in men's Bible study, after talking about the incredible work of Christ, what does it say? The finished work of Christ, what he's done for us. It says, let us now, therefore, draw near. But we're pushing away when we slip away from resting in his grace. We are moving away from relationship back into religion. We are creating this false, fearful dynamic, and it hurts our Lord and Savior deeply. Life in between, our salvation by grace and looking forward to the promise is a life of grace, living in that grace, continuing. So how do we stay there? How do we prevent this kind of fearful slide in our lives? Well, look at Joseph's response here in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, for 
Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph says, first of all, I am not God. Your sin is ultimately this way. So any vengeance would be this way, and thus the grace you have received is this way. It is ultimately from him, not me. This gracious dynamic you're involved in is a gracious dynamic with God, and this is good because he is good. In fact, he's so good, he says, he's providentially good. Joseph has no plans for vengeance on them because, first of all, he is not God. It's not his place. And secondly, because he knows that God is providentially good in all of it. He knows that all the horrific things and circumstances, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All their sins, all their evil plans and deeds, them selling him into slavery, lying to their father, even Potiphar's wife's accusations and his imprisonment and the famine itself, God was working it all for his good plan. What they meant for evil, he meant for good, good for the, from the very start. That's point two about life in between. We don't just rest in his grace, but we trust in God's providential goodness. That's what they need to do. This is what will allow them, in a sense, to rest in his grace. Trust that he's working his good plan even through the worst of their sins. It's hard to get your mind around, isn't it? God's providential goodness through all of it. God is in total control. Of it all, not just responding to to fix each circumstance, but directing them from the start to work his good plan. Try try to mind map that for a minute. How big must God, how, how much control must he have to work it all out from the beginning? I want an illustration I've heard. They all fall short, but the tapestry one, right? Take this beautiful tapestry and you look at it from behind and it just looks like a web of knots and threads and strings, a complete random mess. And then you turn it over and there's this incredible picture and you realize that every single thread pole was planned, worked out from the beginning. God is providentially good. And two things I want to say about this. First of all, this doesn't make him responsible for evil. It's easy to think, wait a minute, if God is the one doing it and working it all out in every detail from the start, then isn't he responsible for the evil as well? The bad things and the suffering, aren't they on him? Well, the Bible's answer is no. God is in control for good. He never brings evil. We are responsible for the evil. Our sinful choices and actions are on us. We have real moral responsibility. The brothers know this instinctively, by the way. Did you notice? I mean, what do they say about their actions in verse 17? How do they describe them? They talk about their sin. 
their transgressions, their evil. They don't talk about what God did. We know this instinctively. When you sin, does it feel like you're doing it? Yes. That's why there's the shame and guilt. Secondly, in God's good providence, God defines the good. Sometimes people use this, uh, this idea of God working everything for his good kind of in this Christian karma kind of way, right? Quote Romans 8.28 or Jeremiah 29.9 out of context and insinuate that this means that uh, if something bad happens to you, God will soon kind of inversely do something good He'll, in your life. You, you, know, you have, lose your job, and this means that a better one is going to come, so don't worry about it. He works it for good. He has planned for good. It's pretty disillusioning if that doesn't happen. It might, and it would be good God's blessing if it does, but that's not what's being promised here. What's the good here that God is working everything out for? Verse 20, what is it? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's very specific, as it is in the Romans and the Jeremiah passage, keeping his people alive, rescuing his people from death. God's good is always about the salvation of his people. That is the good that he will use, even in our sinful actions, even our sinful actions for, to achieve. It was back then, and it's the same way today. This is the way of the cross, right? The, the, the greatest evil in history, the crucifixion of his son, is part of the good plan of his salvation. Read Acts 4.27 where he talks about what the Gentiles and the Romans are doing to Jesus and then says, and this was working out God's plan from the beginning. This is the way he works. Through our sinful choices now, taking even our worst sins and evil and turning them for his salvation work in the world. In ways that we usually can't see, Sometimes we get to see them in hindsight as they get to see them here, but often we don't see them at all. But it's incredibly comforting, isn't it? We can rest in God's grace because of his providential goodness. We don't have to try to grab back control because our sins are so bad and he can't possibly redeem them and fix all the damage we've done. So we, we, we wear our guilt and our shame trying to redeem our actions with penance and works. No, he's already fixed it. He's already redeemed our evil, our sinful, shameful ways for his good salvation work. We can live in grace every day. The question is, do we believe this? Do we really believe it? Obviously, Joseph's brothers weren't believing it. When we really believe this, we can let go of that attempt at control and loosen our grip and cling on to our gracious Savior. And there's one more uh, 
One more thing, the, the final way of life in between. We rest in God's gracious salvation every day. We trust in God's good providence through all our life. And finally, we look forward to our final home in faith. That's what the bookending funerals are about in this passage. Think of Jacob's funeral, the the big one here. Note just before it, at the end of chapter 49, the specific instructions he gives. Look at chapter 49, verse 29. Then he commanded them, he commanded and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Isn't that an interesting way of saying his, his death? I'm going to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as his burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there they buried Leah, the field. And the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, you're like, man, how many different ways can he say it, right? I mean, this is the field at Ephraim the Hittite. He says the, the field near Machpelah, that's the east of Mamre, the, the one that Abraham bought in Canaan, the one that, you know, Isaac and Sarah and Rebekah. He goes on from every different angle. It's kind of a GPS, ancient GPS, you know, pinning the location so they can't miss it. Why? He is looking forward to the land of promise. Promise to Abraham, promise to Isaac, promise to himself, and all the future generations of God's people being gathered there. The ultimate inheritance. That's where he wants to be. He knew Egypt was not the end point. It was not home. Goshen was nice and comfortable, but it wasn't home and he didn't want an Egyptian tomb when you look at the funeral they gave him it's like Egyptian royalty funeral I mean he had 70 days of mourning a pharaoh got 72 just short of a pharaoh he could ask for anything he could ask for a tomb some type of pyramid whatever but he doesn't want to stay in Egypt he wants to be buried in a cave in the center of the promised land gathered to his people because he knew by faith that an exodus was coming for God's people and he wanted to get ahead of the game and beat them all home. Yes, the exodus was hundreds of years away, but he believed. He went to his death, not in fear, but in full faith. Did you notice that the funeral is actually a foreshadowing of the exodus to come, the actual funeral? Not just the fact that all God's people except the children exodus out of Egypt into the promised land, but in the very details, flocks and herds and chariots and horsemen and a great company. Those are the exact phrases from the exodus under Moses. And when it says this in verse 10, When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there. You know what that means? That means that the funeral procession must have taken the exact same circuitous 
way around the bottom of the Dead Sea and up the east side of the Jordan that Moses would have led them on 400, did lead them on 400 years later. It's the same language, it's the same route, it's the same people, the Israelites and the Egyptians. Only this time, instead of being chased by Egyptian war chariots, they'd be followed by them in mournful procession. You can't miss the obvious prefiguring of the exodus to come. And Joseph, when he died, see, he was, he was looking forward. Jacob was looking forward, and Joseph was in the same way. Joseph's little funeral at the end, look what he says, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph said to the son, sons of Israel, Swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He is looking forward. It's funny, the Hebrews passage that we keep looking at, referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, it comments on Joseph here, in case we didn't catch it says Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. He's not yet there. His bones are going to be left there in Egypt. But man, he is dying in anticipation of the real homeland, the place of blessing, the inheritance. It's interesting to me, I looked back in, in Hebrews, if you just go a little bit back, Hebrews 11, verse 13, this is what all the heroes of faith have in common. Look what it says, Hebrews eleven thirteen. these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. They're looking forward to home in full faith. It's what sustained them throughout life. It's what comforted them in death. How are we doing with this? Do you know that this isn't it? (laughs) We aren't fully home. Our heavenly home is secured for us in Christ, but it's it's still coming. The gathering of all God's people in the full blessing, full inheritance. Pretty awesome thing to look forward to. My friends, life in between... The life we live as Christians is a life continuing in the grace of our salvation, trusting in God's sovereign goodness, and looking forward in faith to our heavenly home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for how you have used the story of Joseph to show us 
the, the rulership and the salvation that your son has brought. The sacrifice that he's made and the inheritance that he's won. And that he gave his life to give us your grace. May we live trusting your goodness. May we live looking forward in faith. Amen.